According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, join me once again in Matthew 26. We return to our Life of Christ series. Did we not have class last week? It seems like it's been... We did. Okay. It's only been a week since we've been here. It seems longer than that. All right. I was just out of sorts on Sunday, not having an evening service, and didn't feel right. All right, Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5, then followed by verses 6 through 13, followed by verses 14 through 16. We'll break down for you the three episodes that we are combining into a single outline study. Episode 14, Jesus tells the date of the crucifixion. Episode 15, anointing by Mary at Simon's feast. And episode 16, Judas contracts the betrayal. And so if you only look at the Matthew references, if you only look at the Matthew references, um, you've got verses 1 through 5, 6 through 13, and 14 through 16 of, uh, of Matthew 26. Is that clear? I, I debated taking those three lines and actually inserting them up top. It's clear enough. You got line 14, line 15, line 16, and then you got the three lines of scripture references below that. All right. In the Mark uh, parallels, uh, they're all in chapter 14, Mark 14, uh, verses 1 and 2. For episode 14, Jesus tells the date of the crucifixion. You got verses 3 through 9. For episode 15, and then you have uh, verses 10 and 11 for episode 16. And so again, you've got a pretty straightforward structure, uh, whether you're looking at the Matthew record or you're looking at the Mark record. Now in the Luke record is the one place where you have a glitch because Luke does not record episode 15. Luke uh, records a similar episode earlier in the life of Christ. Uh, Luke does not record this, but John does. John does record uh, the anointing by Mary at Simon's feast. And that's why you go from Luke to John back to Luke again. Uh, Luke 22, verses 1 and 2 is episode 15, uh, 14. Uh, you don't have any verses for episode 15. And then verses 3 through 6 covers episode 16. And that's what we're looking at there. All right. Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5, when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. And uh, speaking prophetically, of course, uh, two days later he will be on a cross. And while he is saying that, at the very moment that he is advising his disciples of this, remember this is Wednesday night, he has departed the temple, he has crossed uh, the, the uh, ravine there, he's up on the Mount of Olives, he's given the Mount Olivet Discourse, he's completed the Mount Olivet Discourse, they, uh, I expect, at this point, they uh, have um, rounded the southeast corner of the Mount of Olives to Bethany, they are in the home there, Simon's home. And he says, after two days, Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. At that very moment, back in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. The high priest is named Caiaphas, not the court. 
And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. And so this is what we're looking at here today. We want to murder him. We just don't want it to look bad. All right. That's the problem. Because in their universe, image is everything. And how people view them is everything. Murder is all right. We can get away with that. But we can't uh, be less esteemed in the eyes of the people. So we'll discuss this here as well. Before we start, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Ask the Father to provide strength to get through the entire hour. Shall we pray? <coughs> Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day and for the truth of Your Word. And Father, uh, for holding off uh, the headache, the migraine, perhaps that's on its way. So deal with that, Father, as You desire. And uh, provide for the Word of God to go forth today that we might be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. Thank You, Father, for the example of our Savior who knew about His betrayal. He knew when it was going to happen, where it was going to happen, who was going to do it. And yet, uh, He remained obedient, faithful to You and Your uh, your plan, your program, and I rejoice over that. Father, betrayal is one of the uh, most difficult tests that any of us can face. And yet, uh, your grace is sufficient, Father, and we, uh, we understand that. So bless this study. Open our eyes and we might understand it. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, now last week as we were introducing this subject, we got to point one, this is really as far as we got with the subpoints A and B. The recognition that this Prophecy may not seem impressive. All right, a two-day prophecy, big deal. All right, well, it is a big deal, and uh, it is a big deal because none of us could do it, and we can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow. We might expect what's going to happen tomorrow, but an actual prediction of what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, none of us can do that. All right, and the fact that the Lord gives these one-day prophecy, two-day prophecy, short-term prophecies helps to validate the long-term prophecies. And so this was point one in the outline. Short-term prophecies confirm the reality of long-term prophecies. And when you see the literal, direct, precise, exact fulfillments of these short-term prophecies, then you understand this is a true prophet sent from God. His message is faithful. His message is reliable. And so you don't doubt the long-term prophecies. Uh, so we know that the Mount Olivet Discourse is going to be fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled directly, literally, exactly. We don't have to allegorize. That's the other thing. When you have a hermeneutic for the short term, you don't change hermeneutic for the long term. All right? You don't say, well, this was literal, but this is figurative. There's no need to do that. In fact, doing that violates every tenet we understand uh, of... Uh, the purpose for verbal communication is designed to communicate truth. And, uh, and so we understand that. Jesus had previously spoken of his crucifixion. In Matthew 16, he talked about his betrayal and death. In chapter 17, his betrayal and death. Chapter 20, he specifically said that his death would be by the mode of crucifixion. He uses the term crucifixion for the very first time in chapter 20. And now he's pinpointing the day. It's going to happen on Passover. The accuracy of, of this confirms the accuracy of his Mount Olivet prophecies. Now, I will point out uh, he is Christ our Passover, and we have this coming up in uh, under point two. And I'll say some things on that here in a moment. There were other examples of short-term and long-term Old Testament prophecies. I shared these with you already. 
Uh, but Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 8 are a good example of that. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And this is a short-term prophecy, but it has a long-term fulfillment as well. It's fulfilled in the person of Meher Shalal Hashbaz, the birth of uh, swift is the, spooty, uh, the booty, speedy is the prey, uh, serves to encourage uh, Judah that they will be delivered from um, uh, Damascus and, uh, and the northern kingdom of Israel. That united attack against them is going to fail. In the birth of this child to Isaiah and Mrs. Isaiah, right? Or the prophetess as she's introduced there in chapter 7 and as we see here in chapter 8 uh, is the short-term fulfillment of that. But there is also a long-term fulfillment of that in terms of, of course, Mary and Bethlehem and Matthew 1 demonstrates that there's a fulfillment there. We also have short-term, long-term that's envisioned in um, other realms of application such as Jeremiah 28, Jeremiah 32, and uh, we spent the time looking at that. And sometimes it's just as simple as tomorrow uh, here, there's going to be a young man coming looking for his donkeys. Or tomorrow you're going to have a cousin going to come to you and he's going to want you to buy his uncle's uh, or your uncle's uh, plot of land. You need to buy that plot of land, right? And so tomorrow when the cousin shows up, uh, unexpected, unannounced, well, he is expected, he is announced because the Lord announced it to you prophetically through the the prophetic office, the prophetic ministry. I think there's a lot more of that than we're aware of. Now, this was probably more customary and normal for an Old Testament prophet. Just the way that it's phrased and expressed in Jeremiah, the way it's expressed in 1 Samuel, the way that we see this in the life of Christ, different examples of that. And of course, none of that happens today. I find it remarkable. Even with the signs and wonders crowd, the, the so-called prophets today, they can't uh, prophesy a day out, two days out, to uh, demonstrate their validity as prophets of the Lord. And why would they? You know. And also keep in mind the, the, the role of the apostles and prophets was for the foundation of the church, the writing in the New Testament canon. There's no need for church age prophets today and no need for Israel's prophets. Israel doesn't have the stewardship at the moment. All right. Secondly, the Lord specifically cited Passover as the design day of a substitutionary death. The Lord specifically cited Passover as the design day of a substitutionary death. And as I said last week, we may spend some time today in Exodus 12. We may look at Passover just to remind ourselves what Passover is about. And uh, all right, we've got a nursery today. We'll need we'll need that. OK, um, but you understand that Passover is a substitutionary sacrifice. Passover is so that the firstborn son does not need to die. And as a substitutionary sacrifice, it is done uh, according to all the stipulations that the Father puts into effect. And uh, Jesus Christ is our Passover, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Now, we will address this if we don't touch on it today. Um, well, we will. We'll touch on it today, but we're also going to touch on it down the road. We need to understand some things coming up. And I don't know if you've ever been exposed to this or not, but the disciples go in to the upper room on Thursday night and they have a dinner there that Thursday night and uh, is prepared for the Lord in the upper room. It is called a Passover. They have Passover on that Thursday night. And then um, uh, that evening he, he prays that night at midnight. He's arrested. He has trials throughout all of Friday morning. Uh, before sunup, and then he has more trials Friday morning. But then the Pharisees uh, are are very 
uh, or the uh, the chief priests actually are uh, desirous to get the trials over with, to get the execution over with, because, and it specifically says, we must uh, observe Passover. All right. So they have not had their Passover dinner yet. And so this then becomes a, a puzzle. We have to reconcile how can there be both a Thursday night Passover dinner and a Friday uh, before the cross that Jesus and his disciples do, and then a Friday night Passover dinner after the cross, whereby the religious leaders are eager to get the crucifixion over and done with so that they can hurry home for the for the Passover. All right. And how is it that Jesus dies on the Passover as the the Passover of the universe? What was he doing eating the Passover dinner then the night before? Was he wrong for doing that? Was he and his, you know, they just, they, they did a dinner the day early before the Passover lambs were, were slaughtered? Okay. Because remember, while Jesus was on the cross outside of Jerusalem, what were they doing in the temple precincts? Yeah, they were slaughtering Passover lambs. Okay. So there is an answer to this. And I'm just throwing the puzzle out there to you because you may not have been aware of it. Uh, that it is a it is a conundrum or it is a it is a, a puzzle to evaluate. How do we reconcile scripture to scripture? How do we validate both a Thursday night Passover dinner and a Friday night Passover dinner? Does scripture allow for that? How does this work? And um, or do we just throw up our hands and discuss and say, well, the Bible's not trustworthy and they, it contradicts itself and and uh, it either is or it isn't a Passover dinner, right? The upper room, the Lord and His disciples, is it a Passover dinner or not? All right, Scripture says it is. So stay tuned, and if uh, if you already know the answer to it, that's great. But if not, then I'll we'll get to that point here shortly. All right. So the Lord, our Passover. Again, I want to remind you the statements that are made early in the Book of Acts make this very clear that this is God the Father's work on the cross. That God the Father designed it. God the Father is judging uh, sin on His Son, our uh, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we have in Acts 2.23, Acts 3.18, Acts 4.28. And I would just urge you, I know we looked at them last week, but I would urge you to make this a part of your thinking. And you can even use this in your evangelism and your discussion with folks. This man, uh, Acts 2.22 says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Now, keep in mind, these are the father's signs and wonders and, and uh, miracles. The father performed these through him. Jesus is the tool, the instrument, the agent. But the father was reconciling the world to himself. God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Remember, it's the father who's at work in you, both the will and the do of his good pleasure. Jesus Christ may lead you into a ministry. The Holy Spirit may give you a gift and empower your gift. But who accomplishes the effects? It is God the Father who achieves those effects. It is God the Father who is at work in you. And God was at work in Christ, performing through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Both predetermined plan and foreknowledge. Of God that's never separated. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And we're examining that uh, aspect right there related to our Romans series at the moment. 
his spiritual death and his physical death and how uh, it was the father that raised him up in uh, restored him to physical life after his physical death. Anyway, so there's that. Acts 2.23, designed by God the Father. Acts 3.18. Acts 3.18. He says in verse 17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all his prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he, that is God the Father, has thus fulfilled. He said it. He got it done. That's why he's God. And he announces ahead of time uh, things that, uh, that will take place. All right. And then he does it. Acts 4.28. Verse 27 says, uh, truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So three times very early here in the book of Acts, we have the specific recognition that this was designed by God, the father. That Passover was the design day. Why did it, why was Israel given a Passover memorial on the day they left out of Egypt? Why did he kill the firstborn son on that night that they were delivered out of Egypt? What was that designed to teach? What was that look to, uh, designed to look forward to? Well, we understand it was pointing forward to Jesus Christ, Christ, our Passover, the firstborn son, God, the father's only begotten son, the one who will die in our place as a substitutionary death. And so that's what we deal with there. All right. Real quickly, then I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but let's look at Exodus 12. Remind ourselves. I think the moment you just assume that, well, everybody knows that it's a waste of time. Then that's when you say, wait a minute, let's look at it again, just in case. <laughs> All right. Exodus chapter 12. The uh, final plague and the warning is given in chapter 11. About midnight in 11.4, Moses said, Thus says the Lord about midnight, I'm going out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. So you talk about a short-term prophecy? Here you go. Midnight tonight is what's going to happen. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the millstone, and all the uh, firstborn of cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between e Egypt and Israel. This is going to be a night not only of wrath, but it's going to be a night of instruction. We learn through divine discipline. We learn through judgment. All these, your servants, will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. All right. God does not coerce their, the Egyptians' volition, but he does know the circumstances that will um, <clears throat> prompt their volition to be exercised in a certain way. All right. Question on that? I'm reading out of Exodus 11 now as I head to Exodus 12. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. Exodus 11 as I head towards Exodus 12. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So he knows what it takes and the hardened heart. And he's, in fact, he's involved in hardening the heart there. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. And so it's not until the tenth and final plague then that Pharaoh uh, releases Israel. Now, in chapter 12, we have the uh, introduction here to Passover. Uh, verse 2 says, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. Says, it is to be the first month of the year to you. And they, they're going to have both a ceremonial calendar uh, and a civil calendar. And uh, that's why Rosh Hashanah, the, the new year, is in the fall. Um, but that's actually the seventh month of their uh, feasts, of their ceremonial calendar. And uh, this here is in the spring. So Passover is in the spring and we uh, different studies related to their different calendars. Um, speak to the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of the month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now the lamb is selected on the 10th, but not butchered or not uh, killed until the 14th. All right. So Nisan 10, the lamb is selected. Nisan 14, the lamb is executed. Parallel to that is Palm Monday, Nisan 10, Jesus Christ and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and they acknowledge their Messiah and the lamb is selected. Four days later, the lamb is crucified on Nisan 14. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take each according to uh, the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. So he's not an old lamb, but neither is he a child. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. All right. You shall take it. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So that's when he's to die. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Now, this is what's important because the death itself does not finish the ritual. The death itself is not going to save the life of the firstborn son when the angel of death passes over. It's, it, it's required for the blood to be applied. So, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. So that's why if your house is too small to eat an entire lamb, that's why you, you know, bring your neighbors over. If you're a, a, a single person or a young couple with no kids yet, you know, you do what you got to do to finish that lamb off. No leftovers. All right. Burn with fire. All right. Then uh, verse 11, you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So uh, even the manner in which they eat is, uh, is stipulated here. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
I'm not going to take you through it. I'm not prepared to take you through it today. But there is actually a wonderful study related to all ten of these plagues and how they address the dominant gods of the Egyptian pantheon and the things that they were, you know, the, the Nile turning to blood and the flies and the frogs and, and all of that. So anyway, if you ever find material related to that, uh, I would just encourage you. It's judgment against the gods of Egypt that were done in those ten plagues. All right, but the blood shall be a sign for you. What blood? The blood that you applied to the doorposts and to the lintel. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So simply killing the animal does not complete the ritual. Killing the, the animal is not going to provide the substitute for the uh, firstborn son. The blood has to be applied. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, here we have it. And uh, it goes on. It's going to describe how this is a memorial. This is a memorial, by the way, throughout Old Testament history. And it will be once again a memorial in the Millennial Kingdom. They will observe Passover every year for the thousand years of the Millennial Kingdom. And they're going to celebrate it not no longer as a commemoration of Moses' deliverance out of Egypt, but as a commemoration of the Lord's regathering of all Israel from the four corners of the earth. And they will still observe the Passover as a memorial. And, of course, it will have much more significance for them in the millennium because it will also point back to Calvary. It will point back to Christ's work on the cross. And uh, the reality of the doctrine there will, will have much more significance than it ever did for them in, uh, in Old Testament times. All right. But the blood has to be applied. That's the significant thing. And so that's why we talk about the value of the blood of Christ and, and the work that he did on the cross and how it is that he can uh, it can be an unconditional election or how it could be an unconditional atonement. Right. Unlimited atonement is what I'm trying to say that it could have value sufficient for the entire human race. But it does. It's not applied until when? Until they believe. That's right. Until somebody hears the gospel message, responds to it, believes, places their faith in Christ. At that point, then the blood is applied and they are redeemed. They are uh, their sins are forgiven. They're, they're passed over. We see this here. All right. We even have a hymn in our hymnal that addresses that. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Um, there's there's the doctrine related to that. The, the death does not complete the work. I mean, it is finished as far as the, the death goes, but the applying of the blood. And each one of us personally, that blood is applied when we believe. And when we, the nation of Israel will have it applied to them as a nation in Exodus tw or Ezekiel 20. We talked about that last week as well. All right. So the Lord specifically cited Passover as the designed day of a substitutionary death. Now, thirdly, the chief priests and elders were in a conundrum. Let's get back to Matthew 26. The chief priests and elders were in a conundrum in their assassination conspiracy. And we read their deliberations amongst themselves. They plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. Passover was the perfect time to kill Jesus because they knew exactly where he was going to be. <laughs> But it was also the worst time to kill Jesus because there were so many witnesses. All right. One of the significant uh, tactical considerations in any assassination attempt. I'm speaking out of great experience here. 
my vast background as a as a hitman. Did you see the news yesterday? There was a story of a woman who survived three assassination attempts. Her husband is presently on trial. He or I don't think the trial started yet, but he's been charged with attempted murder. And evidently, if I remember the story right, evidently the what the what the prosecutors are saying is that this man and his mistress together hired three different hitmen to to kill his wife. And um, stunning story. The wife was interviewed. She survived all three attacks against her, even if it had been shot in the gut. Uh, she survived that. She survived all of them. She still loves her husband. She's forgiven him. She wants to stay married. She, she believes he's innocent. He has declared his innocence. His, his defense is that it's all the mistress's idea. The mistress is the one that hired the three hitmen. Uh, so anyway, I'm going to kind of follow this. Um, I, I want to know in the weeks ahead, I, I follow these news stories. I don't know why. Maybe my law enforcement background. Um, but it, uh, it provides for good doctrinal illustrations um i you know to me <laughs> any housewife that can survive three assassins <laughs> you know who are these hitmen where's he finding these guys you know goodness quit hiring the discount uh hitmen or something you know how tough can it be anyway um one of the considerations, if, if you do want to kill somebody, uh, you've you got to figure out where they're going to be and when they're going to be there. You've got you to know, you've got to have a predictable uh, thing. And that's why, you know, with um, different uh, protection measures and so forth, you don't publish your schedule ahead of time. And you vary your schedule. You vary your routes, things like that. You don't let potential assassins know where you're going to be and when you're leaving and what route you're taking and things like that. Well... Uh, they're set up here. I mean, they know that he's in Jerusalem. He's been here all week. He's in the temple every day teaching. Uh, they know, uh, in particular, on Passover itself, they suspect that he's going to come and bring a, bring a lamb. It's what he's done every year, right? So Passover is the perfect time to kill him. The problem is, though, there's all these witnesses around. There's crowds. So they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. And you would love it if in between verse 4 and verse 5, someone would speak up to say, wait a minute, thou shalt not murder. <laughs> you know, um, they don't seem to care about that. Uh, they were saying not during the festival. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. Now, what's the problem with a riot? Yeah, the problem with, a, well, yeah, crowd control. The problem with the riot, though, is Romans don't put up with riots. Okay, uh, Romans, their big concern is, I mean, they didn't like the Romans, but if they could keep things under control, then the Romans let them be in charge of stuff. And uh, the Sanhedrin, if, if they kept the peace, but the minute there were riots like Galileans up north or other riots, Romans came down hard. And the fear was that they would come and take away our country and our place. Okay. And that was not acceptable to the high priest, to the Sanhedrin, to, the, to any of the, the religious leaders. So a riot might occur. And the problem there, the minute that happens, 
The Romans are going to come down hard. All right, and the fear of Rome is is uh, palpable in uh, in this day and age that we're studying here. All right, it was the best of times; it was the worst of times. And uh, what are we going to do? And it's it's interesting because while they're they they don't have any answers, they have no answers through verse five until verse fourteen. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? Now all of a sudden they've got the answer they didn't they didn't have before. Alright? Now they've got their answer. Now they understand, wait a minute, now we've got an opportunity. One of his own is going to select the time and the place and arrange for the uh, opportunity for the betrayal. So they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him and from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray he's going to become the instrument that's going to allow them to do this in secret without the crowds observing the arrest without the uh without a riot taking place now in between what do we have there in between verses 5 and 14 right you have 6 to 13 you've got this story of the anointing of jesus uh by mary here okay and that, that's nested right in between 5 and 14. You notice that? They've got a conundrum. Judas walks in. And in between that is this story of the anointing of Jesus. Okay, by Mary here with the costly perfume. Um, same thing in Mark. Look over to Mark 14. You notice the same thing. Mark 14. Verses 1 and 2, conundrum. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. They're saying not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Almost identical terminology to Matthew's account. And when you notice verse 10, here comes their hero. Judas walks in. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him. They were glad when they heard this, <laughs> wow, all of a sudden the answer, we didn't know what we were going to have. And they promised to give him money. He began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. So you have the conundrum, you have the, the betrayal. And in between, nested in there, is this story of uh, Bethany and uh, the home of Simon the leper and the anointing of his feet. And so it's nested in between there. Now, um. It appears that this episode here, this anointing by Mary at Simon's Feast, happens on this Wednesday night. But I think with a closer reading, we actually learn that it's not Wednesday night. I'm going to go back to... Uh, I think the language both in Mark and Matthew is the same. Because we have in Matthew 26.6, it says now... When Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. Not that night. On a previous occasion. On a previous time. Not this same night. When Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial. And so, as I outline this, let me go back to here. And then here. Point four. Mary, Mary's anointing was taught in uh, episode 41 
of the last Judean and Perean ministry. It was another episode of our study. Mary's anointing was taught in last Judean and Perean ministry, episode 41. My abbreviation for that is LJ and PM 41. Okay, you probably spotted these over the last seven years. GM is Galilean ministry. Um, LJ and PM is last Judean and Perean ministry. Uh, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. That's a long one. J-F-W-W at J. Okay, and right now we're in episodes 14, 15, and 16. So the point is, is the um, what the Harmony of the Gospel has done that we're following, it numbers this episode as number 15, episode 15 in Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. But it's the same event I'm convinced it's the same event as episode 41 of uh, the last Judean and Priam ministry. In other words, this happened already. It happened last Saturday. It happened last Saturday. It doesn't happen on the Wednesday night, two days before the crucifixion. It happened last Saturday. But it's recorded here, both by Matthew and Mark. The narratives of Matthew and Mark record the episode here and record it as a flashback event. Common in literature, common in film, common in in uh, stage productions and so forth. Not unusual. Common in, in narrative. The narratives of Matthew and Mark record this event as a flashback event in the context of Judas's betrayal. And in both records, it's in Matthew and in Mark, it's in the context of Judas's betrayal, showing us the motivation for Judas's betrayal, showing us his disgust. I think John does a good job of this as well. John 12, verses 2 through 8, in d- detailing how uh, Judas was upset at the costly, at the waste, the financial cost of that perfume. And the fact that he himself was a thief. He himself wanted to sell that, to, you know, for the kids. It's always for the children. Uh, <laughs> politicians today pass this law, it's for the children, you know. Well, meanwhile, you know, 99% of it goes to line their pockets or their cronies or their their uh, folks. Maybe 1% gets to the children. Judah, same thing. I think the language here, again, is, is slightly different. Um, it, it just seems to be a, a, a disjunctive um, shift from verse 5 to verse 6. When Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him. It, 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 it seems like that's a separate time, different from verses 1 through 5, different from verses 14 and following. And it gives us the motivation here. A woman came to him with an alabaster vial. She's not named. It's uh, named in John's record. A woman came to him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. The disciples were indignant. Judas wasn't alone in that, by the way. The disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? His perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, that's true. And also, I think it gives us an indication of probably how Jesus normally operated. That uh, they they typically would have um, made do with more modest um, things and and used excess funds for uh, charitable purposes and so forth. But on this night or on this occasion, six days before his death, on this Saturday, on the final Sabbath, his final Sabbath on earth, all right, um, 
he says, why do you bother this woman? She has done a good deed to me for you always have the poor with you. You know, next week you'll have plenty of time to do charitable works on behalf of the of the poor. But you do not always have me for when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest. So it seems to be connected not temporally, but causally. Uh, It's connected in terms of a motivation that um, this event was in uh, Judas's mind as he contracts that betrayal. Uh, As I said, uh, we already looked at Mark and saw how it was nestled in there in John 12. In John 12, it's very clear. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover. And so you got to do something to reconcile these passages. In Matthew 26, Jesus says it's two days before the Passover when I'm going to go to the cross and die. In uh, John 12, it's six days before the Passover. So what is it? Is it two days or six days? These events seem similar. They seem identical. Are they different events? Does he get does he get dunked twice with his perfume? Are they two different events? The author of the harmony we're using believes so. Okay, A.T. Robertson believes so. That's why this is episode 15 in the last in the uh, Jesus final week of work in Jerusalem, and that's why it's episode 41 in the last Judean and Perean ministry. I think they're the same event. I think it's a flashback in the narrative of Matthew 26 and Mark 14. So six days before the Passover came, to, uh, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Remember, formerly dead Lazarus, who died in chapter 11, was brought back in chapter 11. Now in John 12, uh, Jesus goes to his house for dinner. And they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with them. And Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume. Notice, she's not named in the Matthew and Mark records. In the in the flashback narrative, but she is named here. It's Mary, sister of Lazarus, sister of uh, Martha, is the one who takes uh, a pound of costly perfume of pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And I notice Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him. His intentions are cited here in this. Why are his intentions cited here? said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. He used to pilfer what was put into it. So he goes, he sells the nard. He's like Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, he's, he's saying, you know, we could have sold this for 300 denarii. I'm guessing he could have sold it for 400 denarii. Kept the extra 100 for himself donated the rest and acted like he was so generous. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. In other words, on this occasion, at this time, this is not an extravagant expense. This is not outrageous. This is not uh, improper in the will of God. All right. It's interesting, too, before I leave John 12, we can understand... um, 
The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. They get a twofer, right? You go to Lazarus' house right now, you can see two for the price of one, right? You, you, can, see, you can see Jesus, who claims to be the Christ. You can also see uh, Lazarus, who used to be dead and, and uh, need opportunity there. The chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. <laughs> so their conspiracy, you can imagine, I, you know, what a, what a tough time they're having. They're having a hard time finding a way to kill Jesus where no one can see them do it. And then they're trying to kill <laughs> their other target of assassination is the guy that won't stay dead. You know, their other target for assassination is somebody that already died once and came back. What do we do with him? And then they succeed to hang Jesus on the cross. And the third day he said he was coming back. So, uh, yeah, these guys... Uh, uh, are having a tough time. All right. So Mary's anointing, I think it's a flashback. And that's how I reconcile. I reconcile that Matthew 26 and Mark 14 uh, describe the same event that's described on in John 12. It is the the single anointing there. Luke does teach an anointing. Um, uh, let's see. Luke does teach an anointing, but it's a separate uh, anointing in the Galilean ministry and totally unrelated to uh, to either Matthew, Mark or John in their record there. All right. Anyway, that's my reconciliation and others may may disagree. Uh, Finally, then point five. Judas's betrayal fulfilled a number of Old Testament prophecies. Judas's betrayal fulfilled a number of of Old Testament prophecies. Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16. Again, one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him? And this doesn't catch Jesus by surprise at all. It didn't catch the Father by surprise. Remember, the Father predetermined this. Uh, Jesus is delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And that included the betrayal. That included the betrayer. That included the details of who is... Who, why do you think that Judas was selected to be one of the twelve? He selected eleven believers and this one unbeliever? Was that an accident? Not at all. In fact, he's even listed as such in the... Dodeca, what do we call that? The Dodecapostologue, the listing of the twelve apostles. Of, uh, uh, it's specifically cited... They're named, and uh, Judas is the one who betrays him. The names of the twelve apostles are these, Simon and blah, 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 blah. Get down to Judas, who betrayed him. Not an accident. The Father designed this. The Father stipulated who these apostles are going to be. All right, you've got the foreshadowing of Ahithophel. The foreshadowing of Ahithophel, Second Samuel 15.31. We've studied this at great length. If you were here... 110 years ago when we did our Life of David series. All right. When did we do Life of David? That was a long time ago. The foreshadowing of Ahithophel. 2 Samuel 15. I want to spend some time in this. Goodness. Okay, I'll give you the short version now and then we'll, we'll return to this next week. The foreshadowing of Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 15, 2 Samuel 16, Psalm 41, Psalm 55. I'll list them for you so you can uh, do some homework during the week. You can read up on those. Secondly, the 30 pieces of silver. That was recorded in Zechariah 11. 
the potter's field, also in Zechariah 11. The silver is mentioned in verse 12, the potter's field in verse 13. The fulfillment of this is seen in Matthew 27. And then we'll have a conclusion for you here as well under D. All right, let's look at 2 Samuel 15. Let's spend our time here and then we'll come back to this next week. I tell you what, before we look at Ahithophel, let's look at Psalm 41. Let's, let's deal with the Psalms first. David's anguish over this is, in my mind, um, a beautiful thing. So Psalm 41 and Psalm 55, there are two Psalms that David composed in the agony of his betrayal. And I don't know about you, but when I've experienced betrayal, um, I've never been impelled by the Holy Spirit to compose a psalm. All right. Um, and, and just think, what, what is our response? I, we would like to respond in the filling of the Holy Spirit. We want to respond with blessing. So we're betrayed, and so we respond in fellowship, and we, we pray to the Father, uh, Father, hold us not against them. They know not what they do. Well, wait a minute, Father, they do know what they do. Uh, but still hold this not against them. And uh, judgment is yours. And uh, I want to stay in fellowship. And I want to not inflict vengeance. I'm going to say, Father, vengeance is yours. I'm not going to seek my own vengeance. Um, recompense belongs with you. And I would rather, instead of recompense, I would rather um, repentance. I would rather that they come to Christ. I'd much rather that my enemy get saved. And things of that nature. Okay? If we can, if we can do that. Because all in all, when we are betrayed... Um, carnality is right there to just grab hold. And if we don't start claiming promises, if we don't start occupying with Christ, if we don't start fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, I'll tell you more than anything, I'm going to the flesh. And I want, I want revenge. And I, 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 I'm going to deal in anger. I'm going to deal in hatred. I'm going to, I'm going to be thinking all kinds of non-biblical thoughts. So when I look at Psalm 41 or I look at Psalm 55 and I see... David's agony and his betrayal and how he responds by composing Scripture. That's awesome. Or Jesus and his betrayal when Judas kisses him and he calls him friend. Man. So, uh, Psalm 41, 4 through 9. As for me, well, uh, verse 1 says, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to health. Now, you wouldn't normally take that passage and apply it to the cross, but I think in light of the betrayal, you're going to want to. You're going to want to go back and you want to see this in view of the cross in verses 1 through 3. But then verse 4, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? When he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. And so you have the two-faced betrayal. When he's in your presence, it's one thing. But when he goes out, where's he going? Who's he talking to and what's he planning on? 
All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying a wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down he will not rise up again. Now notice, you know, the real issue here is verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted. My close friend. What did Jesus, I, I gave it away. He called his friend Judas. He called him friend when he came to kiss him. Who ate my bread. In the upper room, he's going to say, who's the one that dipped bread with me? Who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, David wrote this in the aftermath of his betrayal by Ahithophel. And we're going to study that when we get into 2 Samuel 15 and 16. We'll take the time next week to go through that. But uh, he was his close friend, his advisor, his counselor, the one who provided amazing wisdom for him. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. You set me in your presence forever. And it's neat to view how much of this is David's and his experience, how much of this is the Lord and his experience. Does he know that the Father is going to be satisfied with his sacrifice? I think this is expressing the Lord's confidence in the Father's propitiation for that work on the cross. All right. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. In other words, from Alpha to Omega, the entire plan of God is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And it means that David has to be betrayed. David goes through this as the consequence of his own issues. I mean, that sin, by the way, is David's sin, not Jesus' sin, in verse 4. And the... Um, the divine discipline upon David, where David's going to experience the betrayal, David's going to experience the the uh, conspiracies and the abandonment and the everything else, so that he can be the foreshadowing of Christ, so that he can compose Psalm 41. All right, similar background now to Psalm 55. More detail here. The um, hmm. starts off with, I'm looking at 12 through 14, but notice how it starts. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Remember, of course, when he's on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Okay. Verse 12, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Look at this. this is, now this is David with Ahithophel and the fellowship they had. Ahithophel was a mature believer. He's the, uh, we'll, we'll def- describe this for you next week and but it, you might remember he's Bathsheba's grandfather, all right, and he's uh, he's the father of, uh, of one of David's other mighty men, and uh, the not Uriah but one of the other mighty men. And so uh, Uriah was a mighty man. He was betrayed when David put Uriah to death, and then Bathsheba's father was another one of his mighty men that was betrayed, seeing his daughter uh, uh, treated like that. And then the grandfather Ahithophel, all right. 
And um, this is the this was the trigger that turned Ahithophel in hostility against uh, against David. We had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of, in, of God in the throng. Isn't that something? Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling and in their midst. That as for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he knows he's a, God has turned his back, but he's going to call upon God, and God will save him. So, um, mm, there's a whole lot to this. And this takes us down to uh, 6 through 8. So much doctrine here in Psalm 55. Sacrifice a meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. That is a body you have prepared for me. Uh, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. This is Jesus Christ coming to uh, accomplish the will of the Father. All right, so Jesus' betrayal fulfilled a number of Old Testament prophecies, the foreshadowing of Ahithophel, the 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field. Um, and then we will understand the uh, combination or the connection between um, volition and sovereignty, the connection between the tool God uses and the, the, the wrath because of that. You know, um, is it Judas's fault for betraying Christ? Could he claim that, well, I'm just God's tool? Could he even claim to be a, a source of blessing because he was obedient to the plan of God? Right? Some might make that claim. We talked about that briefly in Romans where some might say, let's just sin all the more that grace may abound. May it never be. All right? We'll talk about that, that accountability. God's predetermined plan to crucify Christ does not remove the culpability from the tool who volitionally performed the deed. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to hopefully understand how it is that uh, even though God knows about it and prophesies about it, the people who do it are still accountable for what they do and why they did it and how, how they did it and so forth. So that, that may take us some time too. That's why I didn't want to try to squeeze this all into, into 15 minutes and then move on to something else next week. We'll come back to this again next week. It'll be our, our final class on uh, these episodes um, and uh, deal with uh, Judas's contracting of the betrayal and the, uh, the prophecies they fulfilled. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is true. Thank you for uh, turning back the uh, pending migraine. Thank you that that didn't affect the, the class today. And uh, just rejoice in how faithful you are, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.